Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. This episode is a conversation with Ian McDonald, who has been a professional writer for over 25 years. I've really enjoyed my conversation with Ian, especially the fact that although most of the episodes of the podcast focus on the solid foundations of the craft of writing, in this episode, Ian takes us beyond that to some of the more advanced techniques that really excellent writers have to use. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to remind you that our Lakes Writers course is again running this year from 31st October to 4th November. I'll be there with Crime Writers Mari Hanna and Wendy H. Jones, as well as local blogger Beth Pipe. You can check out the details at our website, which is firstpagecourses.com, or just drop me an email, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com, and I'll get back to you. Here's the interview with Ian. So, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. My guest in this episode is the writer Ian MacDonald. Ian has Scottish and Irish ancestry, born in Manchester, but moved to Northern Ireland at the age of five and has lived there ever since. He sold his first short story at the age of 22 and became a full-time writer in 1987. His first novel, Desolation Road, was published in 1988, and since then he has published over 20 novels, short story collections, and a graphic novel. Alongside his career as a writer, Ian has also worked as a consultant for television. He's won numerous awards over the years, including The Locus, Philip K. Dick, Hugo, Theodore Sturgeon, and John W. Campbell Memorial Awards, and he has won the BSFA Best Novel Award three times. His latest novel, Lunar New Moon, was published last year and is now affectionately referred to by those who know it as Game of Domes. <laughs> we look forward to the sequel, Lunar Wolf Moon, which I think will be published in February 2017. So, Ian, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Oh, lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. I'm going to start with a question I always start with everybody who comes on. Thinking back to when, when you were a child, what were the formative works that inspired you? And that could be books or TV or film or whatever. Oh, yeah. I can remember it specifically. In fact, it was so long ago, it was while I was still living in Manchester, so I was about five years old. Right. But my mother one day sat me down in front of the television and said, watch this. And, you know, lots of people <laughs> say, say, say Star Trek as their formative influence or a bit older Doctor Who. But I was, for me, it was Mike Mercury in Supercar, which was wow. the first of Jerry Anderson's Super Marionation shows. It was Supercar. There was Fireball XL5, Stingray, Thunderbirds, and the rest is puppety history, basically. But she <laughs> sat me down and Mike Mercury in Supercar and said, watch this, you'll like it. And I did. And that was kind of my entry drug. Okay. Um, the first tape was for free. And after that, you know, it's... <laughs> So your mum knew you well. She knew what you liked then, uh, five years ago. Yeah, she did, yeah. It, 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 it was probably the greatest moment of lucid insight into my personality she's had her entire life. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, right. so uh, if we think about the things that you enjoy now, again, whether that's books or film or TV, who are the writers or the, the kind of producers of art who, who influence you or who you respect now, do you think? Mm, yeah, it's hard because my interests shift so mm. often. I don't watch as much live TV as I used to. I hate going to oh, the okay. cinema. I kind of like films, though not as much as I used to because it's years since I saw a really good film. I've seen lots of mm. okay and lots of dire <laughs> films. I'm not prepared to drag myself out of my comfortable chair, pay for parking, yeah. you know, troll into some hypersensor with kids texting the lights up because they don't want people having sex in the back seats and all that, to watch a terrible, terrible movie. So I'll, I'll wait till word of mouth yeah. kind of points in my direction and 
then go and see them. Okay. So just out of interest, what was the last really good movie you saw, do you think? Oh, the last really good movie? Um, like that. I was on a long-haul flight, and I watched a couple on that, and I can't remember what they were. So they kind of that good. Um, really, really good movie. I think, I think it was probably, probably a couple of years back when it was Under the Skin, which was fantastic. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Now you live and have lived nearly all your life in Northern Ireland. And obviously the, the context of that is the troubles and all of the other things that have gone on. So how has that experience informed your work, do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm of sufficient age <laughs> that I, that I've lived through the troubles from when they started, 68, 69 to yeah. uh, 98, 99, kind of when they ended. So 30 years of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Of corporate insanity and of that Western European economy. I mean, I've always thought that kind of Northern Ireland is very much Britain's end game of empire. Yes, yeah. I always say it's, you know, the last outpost of colonialism, which the Welsh kind of raise an eyebrow and say, well, what about us? <laughs> but in a sense, it's, it's sort of the last gasp of overseas empire. No, I have heard you say this, actually, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's... A hundred years of meddling in, in the affairs of another island. Britain always wimped out of its of, of its kind of colonial messes by par- by partitioning all of them were disasters. And you know, in this little bit of Ireland, we are still living in the end. Yeah. And you know, it will take generations, generations for it to die. Yeah, I mean, if you live in Northern Ireland, you know, a dozen ways of telling someone's religion. Well, I, actually, actually, obviously, religion. <laughs> uh, of telling someone's Christian sect, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's no way to run a society. Yeah. Um, now, when I think about your your work it, it seems to me that you do bring in culture religion economy technology it's it's there's a kind of meeting point of many different things many different forces with the work that you do what what attracts you to to that kind of busy large-scale setting do you think i, I don't know i i, I like big noisy messy mm. novels uh the, there is a school of thought that science fiction should take one idea, tweak it, play with it, and explore it, its possibilities, and, and you know, and that's that's all right. But, but there's no fun in that for me because mm. it's a kind of for me that would become a kind of arid intellectual exercise of kind of trying to surprise myself with little clever outpourings from <laughs> fiddling and noodling. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's sort of like sort of like doing your own electronic music album and not sharing it with anyone sort of thing. Mm. Um, no, I, I like big messy novels because the future isn't just one thing happening at a time. The future is everything happening yeah. at yeah. once, and anything that any science fiction that positions itself in the future has to deal with that, or it's kind of lying about its position as a kind of a future-looking, future-oriented literature. It doesn't have to predict the future, but it has to deal with the realities of a future. Mm. And that, for me, that includes everything from top to bottom inside. So. When I came to, to read Brazil, I thought, OK, and I didn't know a great deal about your work when, when I read it. And I thought, how is this guy going to treat religion? You've got <laughs> the Jesuit priests and there's kind of been a bit of an open season on all things Catholic for a while. But I reading yeah, the book, yeah. I didn't sense. And, in, and, and actually listening when, when you, you spoke at... at um, Eastercon, which I was at, and you weren't kind of approaching religious themes with a kind of smug disrespect, I suppose. Actually, it was a bit more nuanced the way you approach these things. I wonder if you can just kind of expand on that a little bit. How do you bring in those themes and treat them in the way that you do? Yeah, um, certainly in Brazil, um, I, I, I wouldn't have recommended it as a starting <laughs> starting point in my work, but well done. You plunged the waters were deep and cold and infested with sharks. It's, oh, it's, it's character building stuff. It's, <laughs> it's just bracing, <laughs> bracing. <laughs> um, 
the thing about uh, the thing about the, the Jesuits, what interested me was in in a way they were by no means the bad guys. Um, yes. Okay. Brazilian history. I, I've read quite a lot of it. Is, mm terrifying. Uh, the Jesuits were there to bring their religion and the word of God, but certainly down around the, amongst the Guarani, down along the border of Uruguay and in Argentina, where they go out, mm. was, was the movie The Mission was set there. Yes. And it's mostly a true story. The, you know, when they sent the guy on the cross over the falls, those are the Iguazu Falls. The the Jesuit missions, yes, they did destroy or transform out of all recognition Guarani society. But there's an argument that it, but that, that moment of contact with with Europeans, it was doomed anyway. Hmm. The Jesuits did their best to resist the slavers. At the time, they created the world's only totally literate society. Every single Guarani could read right mm. and play a musical instrument. So in some ways, they weren't totally the bad guys. Mm. And I wanted to kind of explore what they did up in the Amazon, because they tried a similar thing there. But there was a huge, uh, basically became a kind of imperial battleground in a very, very kind of quiet way between Spain and Portugal. But the Portuguese, who had the mouth of the Amazon, you know, naturally thought, well, we'll just head a little bit further, a little bit further up, and a little bit further up. Yeah. And various missionary orders went up before them. There were political clashes between ones, Spanish ones coming down from Lima and Peru, right. Jesuits moving up. Uh, and it became a kind of very interesting cultural battleground. Mm. And these are the sort of, sort of themes that I suspect do interest you, aren't they? They're these kind of big canvas, big geography, big religion. Yeah. Things. Obviously, technology is in your in your book. It's, it's presented, I think, as a fairly neutral force. It's not seen as good or evil. What what sort of role does technology play? Do you think in your work? Um, I, I think so. I'm, I'm I'm interested in its effect on people's lives, mm. and so I'm interested in what technology, and specifically technology, because that's a bit of science we use. Um, mm. You know, that, you know that kind of affects our lives and our bodies most intimately. And I'm interested in its effects on people, on family, on groups of people, and kind of societies as mm. a whole. Yeah, it's it's it changes things, but in a way, also not doesn't change things that much either. Mm. The other theme that I've seen in your work, which it didn't come to me immediately, but when I started reading more and more of your work, actually there is a lot of this is sport. Yeah, um, obviously <laughs> in Brazil. Uh, yes. But then I thought about Dervish House and Luna yes. and what is sport for you? Is it is it a metaphor for war perhaps or is it just is it a, a manifestation of the conflict amongst people or, ha- oh, yeah. or is it something else? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, in Brazil, we went to the Barracanha Stadium um, and they have all the football players, you know, all the the great Brazilian players, you know, mm. and I kind of went down the wall and there was Pele. And I wept. <laughs> Genuinely <laughs> moving. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And sport, I mean, I am the world's, well, world's least athletic person. <laughs> um, I kind of enjoy it. I, I've, I've no skill at participating in it, but it kind of distracts it. So that kind of rules that out. Okay. But sport, for a start, it's unfashionable against, amongst us geeks because, because our idea of sport is rolling dice and doing D&D. I've always detested yes. D&D. Uh, <laughs> Boring. What a revelation. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. Boring as hell. It's all little jotting things down. Oh, I hate it. Um, by putting actual physical sport, it kind of plays against assumptions of what science fiction is about. And sport really on, you know, is a great way of getting under the skin of a society and finding out what's going on there. And, I guess yeah. it is a facet of the culture of a society. It is, isn't yeah. it? Especially I mean, some, some societies. Yeah. I mean, I mean you mentioned in the Dervish House. I remember rightly, it's a Champions League match between Arsenal and Galatasaray. Yes. 
It's actually happened a couple of years. <laughs> well, it had an astonishing realism to it. I thought there must have, that must have, well, I know it did happen. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was actually based when I was there. We were staying down, uh, in Seljuk and it was a, it was an international match between Turkey and Yunanistan. We only realized as we watched the game, Yunanistan was Greece and this was the ultimate grudge match of the cast. <laughs> and Greece kicked their asses and the faces got locked. Oh dear. You know, it's like, it's like the famous quote of Bill Shankly, you know, you mean, some some people say it was a matter of life and death. I assure you, it's much more important than that. And it was a great. <laughs> and somehow that's that's that just sums it up. Perfect, isn't it? it <laughs> and I just saw, I just saw a little bit, a little bit into kind of you know kind of Turkish attitudes and, and uh, yeah. Yes. So it, it opens things up. In Luna, it's it's Olympic handball because I have to think of a sport that would work in very low gravity. But basketball is out the window totally. Yes, it, it's not really uh, going to work terribly well. It's not going to work. Yeah. Olympic handball, because you've got small goals. <laughs> I was going to ask you about about Luna actually as well, because obviously a lot of your work is based in a, a real yeah. place with people in it and a culture. And then with yeah. Luna, obviously you've got to, you almost have to start from scratch, and you create a very culturally liberal, but sort of economically vastly a neocon society. <laughs> so that must have been something you deliberately did. Well, why did you create that kind of place? The inspiration for it came when my wife was watching the reboot of Dallas, which was lousy. Not a patch on the original, apart from Larry Hagman's JR, who's still glittered. But I kind of thought, you know, how great, how great Dallas was and Family Feud shows. And they'd gone out of fashion a bit, but then Game of Thrones came along and brought the Family Feud back. And I was trying to think, where could you set a novel where the Family Feud, where you can't get out of the feud, where there's no yeah. escape from it? And, yeah. It's uh, very claustrophobic, isn't it? That's I, I mean, it, that's that, it, yeah. That, that novel, it, it, it is, it's just very intense and claustrophobic. Yeah, there is nowhere you can get you can't get out of the game. It's, yeah, yeah, and I and the rest just followed from that. And they say some say that science fiction is either economically neoliberal and socially conservative, or socially liberal and economically conservative. Mm. I thought, well, I'm going to do a society that is economically neoliberal and socially neoliberal. Yes, let's, let's tweak that genre a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I try to think, how do I get that to work? And and then the whole lunar legal system, because everything's based on personal negotiation kind of seem to be the perfect mechanism for setting that up. Thing come right, said there's no criminal law. No criminal law. Lunar is there. It's all it's all kind of it's all yeah. kind of commercial and contract law and that's yeah, it. Exactly. Uh, the contract I mean uh, I was reading that um it's one of the areas that you know when the robots rise, one of the first jobs they well, take from us is probably uh, reading, assessing, and, and even drafting up boilerplate contracts. Ah, uh, okay. So a society that, you know, everything is done with a contract, artificial intelligence can do that very mm. quickly and very easily for you. And you don't have a huge, well, you do have a huge bureaucracy, but, but most of the donkey work is automated. Um, most of my podcasts are 15 minute piece on an aspect of creative writing, and I've been looking at setting. Mm just recently yeah, yeah. and obviously with your work readers can just immerse themselves in the richness of the detail so how do you go about achieving that that immersive quality in your work well i, I try as much as possible to go to the place that i'm writing mm. in certain situations that's not feasible <laughs> but uh <laughs> not been to the moon yet then i take it. no 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 not, not yet no, um, <laughs> because i can't see how the things you read, you can get so much from television, but it's all edited. You can get so much from reading stuff. Yeah. Fiction is, fiction is good, but you kind of need to see how these little details that you pick up on. Because world building, if you want to use that expression, M. M John Harrison put it that way. <laughs> world building is the clunking boot of nerdism, which is great. Um, 
It's out there on the internet. You, you can see it. It's great. Um, I mean, for me, it's about the details. Yes. The problem is always how to convey what's different about a world. Every character lives in their own world and their world is completely normal to them. But there are aspects of their everyday life that will be strange to us. And it's how to get those details without making them exotic or, you know, or, or explaining it in brackets. So I'm going to do an input on. I can't remember whether I've read this or I've heard you say it, but you said small details anchor the story. Yeah. Now, do you want to just expand on that a little bit for us? Because I, I agree with you, but I want to hear what your interpretation of that is. Yeah, I mean, in in Luna, I was, uh, I was interested in what people drink. Mm. The simple reason is uh, because what people drink, in a sense, defines their social occasions. We drink coffee, you have coffee houses, you have baristas, you have an entire coffee culture, you, mm-hmm. the whole shebang. You know, you, you have wine societies, you have beer societies, all that. Huge social things ripple out from that. You know, what you drink at the party, giving a bottle of wine, giving a bottle of beer. A beer event is different from the wine event. Mm. Because in Luna, I was interested in constraints, the constraints the moon puts on human beings who live there. And I was thinking about, well, what would people yeah. drink? Coffee is difficult to grow, takes up a lot of space. Uh, tea, likewise, mm. tea bush tea. And I, and I thought about, mm, mint tea, because mint grows, mint is a voracious grower. Under, under lunar gravity, it will grow big. Mm. So we have a culture of mint tea drinking. But in Luna, coffee is a, it's almost beyond luxury as a drinker, isn't it? I think. It is. It's more expensive than gold because the, the the miners who mine the regular throw the gold away because they've got no use for it. It's just pretty metal. Coffee, however, has to be shipped up over Earth at a ferocious cost. It's truly, truly precious. Yeah, uh, likewise, when it comes to booze, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, likewise, grapes are hard to grow. They take up a lot of space. Wheat is equal or impractical. So it's cocktail culture. Kind of fancy cocktail culture, isn't it? You mentioned there that you try to visit the places that you're going to write about. Do you have a, a method, even a broad method that you use when you visit somewhere? Are there other things? Are there like, do you aim to go to certain places? Do you aim to talk, talk to certain people? What do you do in terms of that research? Yeah, I have people I want to talk to. I try and keep my ears open as well because there's always enough to be surprised by stuff. Mm. You know, being open to random events often opens up those little ways into a place or society that you don't get yes. if you go through channels. When I was in, when, when I was in Turkey, I wanted to see the Mevlevis, the uh, the whirling dervishes, mm. the Sema, the whirling dance. And the only place, the only way I could do it was through a tourist ship. And this was out in Cappadocia in a cave. It was great, really. It was great. <laughs> we all sat around in this cave. And in came the Dede and his dervishes in the band. We played. We watched it. And afterwards, I went to talk to the Dede, the abbot, in a sense, actually. Right. That particular order. And we were talking to him. He was a garage mechanic during the day. He was one of those naturally radiantly spiritual people who sometimes meets. And he said, the dervish orders, orders were banned in 1928 in Turkey. And it was legal to do it. What they were doing was they were hiding in plain sight. And I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> because, because, it's, because it's the way they do it. They raise some money for good causes. But for them, that's what they do. You know, so that, it, it looks like an entertainment. Yes. But for them, it is, it's the practice of their faith. It's the real thing. Yeah. Okay. It's the only way they can do it is by passing it off as a show. And I was, I was uh, very okay. impressed with that guy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> some writers talk about themselves almost as magpies. I can't remember whether you, I've heard you use this phrase. I might, you might have done this, this, the habit of a magpie to kind of look around and just pick the shiny things, pick interesting ideas, collect them from all over the place. Yeah. Um, and letting those ideas settle so that they then months, years later might come to the surface and be used. Uh, how conscious are you of using those sorts of habits with, with your work? Very much. I don't tend to take notes. Actually, I don't take notes at all because okay. I, I never remember to bring a notebook with me. 
But I, I practice kind of mental Darwinism, which is if an idea is good enough, it will stick. Ah, uh, okay. Um, yeah. The strong survive, the weak go down the memory well, like, like ping pong and inside out. <laughs> <They're forgotten. laughs> and, they, and they can sit there. I tend to think of the of the, the process more like kind of forming a solar system, that all these ideas are floating in this planetary ring, and, and then some collide, gravity draws them together, right. and they attract others. Right, so some might coalesce together. Yeah, and, yeah. Yes. and they may not be even ones that kind of seem, that seem naturally to go together, but Half the fun is making them work. Yes. Um, yeah. If I could give an example of that, I would, but I can't at the moment. <laughs> well, I mean, you do have some fairly exotic ideas. I mean, I suppose the, I, I think for you, the, the mellified man yeah, ah, is yeah, an idea I, which I suspect really, really struck a chord with you when you found out about it. Yeah, that's, uh, that was a good one. And this book called Stiff, which is a history of corpses, and they mentioned the mellified man, and I said, what? hell is that? Went and looked it up a bit, discovered it might be real, and I thought, well, where's the mellified man going to turn up? The answer is this time, well, it's going to turn up. And I just had to use it. I suppose we should say um, the mellified man, for people who are listening to this don't know, is, is, is like a somebody who's been mummified in honey. That's it. Yeah. And what gives that story, as you've implied there, kind of an extra exotic twist is it might be true. Yeah. But it might not be. I feel like I kind of took an old story that had been forgotten and released it back into the wild again. It's popped up in a couple of places since, and I kind of have a little knowing tapping. <laughs> ah, i man, yeah. We heard it first from Mr. McDonald. Yeah, yeah well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your characters. Do your characters come to you very quickly and fully formed, or do you have to work hard to realise them? Oh, um, I have to work hard to realise them. Was it, it Churdinev or some, some Russian writer said, you know, when he started writing a novel, his character like somebody he meets on the train, and by the time he's finished the novel, they're like a family member. Mm. They evolve as I go along. And do you feel you need to get them to a certain base level before they get into the before the novel starts? So? Oh yeah, I've, yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, I need to know who they are, a little bit of what they look like, what their inner fear is, and what their kind of and the sense what their fatal flaw is. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. and I was told this by a, a group of comedy writers in Belfast. You know, that all their characters said but when they're doing comedy. It's a handy shorthand, but each character's fatal flaw is one of the seven deadly sins. Well, that's not <laughs> a bad idea, actually. <laughs> so in in Luna, definitely amongst the quarters, Ariel's is pride, and Rafa's is definitely is definitely wrath because he's, he's one of the anger management issues. Yeah, he is kind of on the edge all the time, isn't he? <laughs> oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, he's he, he's the golden boy who kind of knows he's not as good as a, as as he needs to be, and he's always just here losing it. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Well, he does, does he really? Yeah, yeah. He does. I mean, well, they're not. They're not perfect people. You're not pretending they are. are you? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a bit of stick. I've got to say a bit of stick on Goodreads, which is okay. <laughs> but it's uh, people saying about likable characters. I don't want likable characters. I want interesting characters. If you want people you can like, what kind of wuss are you? <laughs> yeah, it's, in fact, one of the questions I was going to ask you, which you've, you've kind of addressed here in a way, is I think it seems to me you. You want to create interesting characters, or you want to create characters that people can, yeah, be in, interested in, but not necessarily yeah. sympathise with. Exactly. Um, yeah. And how how do you do that? I mean, I know you you perhaps begin to unpack that a little bit, but how how does that happen? Well, first of all, what a character needs, and also what a how a character needs to love, what they need to learn about love, because all the quarters in Illumina need to learn to love. Right. Errol needs to learn someone outside herself. Uh, Lucas needs to be able to trust somebody. 
you know, the person, yeah, the person he really loves, loves his mother, but he needs to be able to love somebody else. He needs to be able to love his son the way he wants to. It's, it's all about them learning to love right. And yeah, it's, it's the same with all the characters. That is, that is an interesting observation because having, having read the book, there is not an, a huge amount of love going around on no. Luna, is there really? It's, it's, it's a pretty, Hard place. It is a hard place, but it's there, you know. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it is there. One of your characters, I can't remember which one they are, develops relationship with a musician, don't they, in Luna? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Lucas, yeah. It's Lucas, it's, that's right, yes. yes. And that's, that's quite a, that's quite a point, that's almost the most poignant tender. Yeah. It's because, part of the book, I think. It's because he wants something beautiful in his life, and the moon's not mm. place, and this is the only beauty he has, is the music. So, um, what I have noticed in your work is that you sometimes take a character from a relatively low social economic background, and you give them a lot of drive, and you push them through into into the world in which th- that you're creating, and they achieve. It doesn't mean they have an easy time of it, but they achieve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like Marcelina uh, from Brazil, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. perhaps... Um, Layla from Dervish House. They they kind of yes. got that drive. To, is is that a theme? Do you enjoy those sorts of characters? Yeah, it's it's lovely to kind of reverse social positions and also also to trip people up on the way. It's one of the oldest storytelling things, you know. Is is the little tailor who succeeds. Mm-hmm. Almost, I can't go into Luna too deep without throwing without throwing massive capital M spoilers, capital S into it. But but yes. but <laughs> people's social position end up quite different from how they started. Uh, that's interesting. There's an old, um, I first heard it actually, someone was talking about Bar- Barbara Taylor Bradford, uh, the, the kind of historical novelist. Uh, she used to have shows on TV all the time. And it was always, you know, it was, it was the, no- it was the northern daughter of the, someone in service who owns, who ends up owning the massive department store in Manchester, you know, something like that. And it's the whole thing of clogs to clogs in three generations. You know, the first generation makes it, second generation consolidates it, third generation wastes it. And that interests me because you've got a built-in social arc there of rise, yes, yeah, you know, rise insecurity and possibly fall at the end. And characters are interesting when they move from one state to another. I mean, Yelena in the in the, in, in the Dervish House is interesting because who goes and hunts the mellified man because she gains in a sense everything she wants and has it taken away by a man at the end because turkeys like that. Which 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 I it's true, yeah. A couple of reviewers said actually, yeah, uh yes, Turkey is a still a shitty place to be world. But yeah, that's the way it goes. That's yeah, that's yeah, I mean we're not in the business of fairy tales, no. you know. It's and it's not wish fulfillment, you know, well, you know, it's the way it is. It's it shouldn't be like that at all. And you know, work is being done, you know, Turks are working to make it more fair more. Yeah. So Thinking about advice that you might give to writers, aspiring mm. writers, what advice would you give to, to an aspiring writer who wants to give their characters more agency and more life? Uh, because you're, quite a number of your characters mm. have a huge amount of agency, despite the kind of harshness of the realities that you're creating and the worlds you're creating. They really do kind of go for it, don't they? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't make them too kick-ass for a start. Uh, characters with agency are, are, are in some ways most inter- interesting when they have doubts about it, you know, when they're beset, beset with doubts about their own ability to do it, but they do it anyway, because whatever they need to achieve needs to be done, or there's something, there's either something external or internal opposing them. Internal conflicts are always more interesting. Internal contradictions are always more interesting obstacles than, than the bad guy with the gun, you know, 
you know, trying to stop you. So I think for interesting characters, there has to be something inside them that they need to overcome or change or even just face and recognize to be able to achieve that gives them the key to doing what they want to do. In the Derby House, it's uh, Jam, who is the kid with the robot toys that everyone wants. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's basically functionally deaf because if he hears about it, his heart will stop, which is a real condition. Basically, he's, and he's been kept in the house and, and the thing he has to overcome is imagining him to be is he's been told he's the sick kid all his life and he goes out to be the boy detective and he gets into terrible trouble as a consequence but he does it because he wants to overcome that inner barrier and conflict. Well he does a you bunch know. a whole bunch of stuff doesn't he? I mean particularly towards he the does, end of that. Yeah. He's, he does, yeah. he's got the best toys in yeah, the world. Yeah he has got great, the great, great toys he's got better toys than the grown ups have got in that book I think. Yeah <laughs> <laughs> now, now you once said um, no character really knows their own culture can you, and I think I know what yeah. you mean by that, but again, yeah. it's good to hear it from, from the person who said it. Well, do you want to expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, we all grow up in the culture, but it's, any culture is such a big thing that we are, in a sense, all only part of it and we have our own interpretations of it, our own take on it, our own values, what we do with, what we, what we disagree with. And if culture is being handed down to us from people living, people living before them, I do believe that it is our duty as a new generation to take, to take what we've been given and do something with it, not preserve it, change it in some way or other, transcend it, transform it, or transduce it and do something with so it. So you're not re- not rejecting it, but taking it on to something new? Yeah, yeah. it is, yeah. But, but in a sense, every... Every person is just a shard of that. Um, as, I mean, I'm sitting here in a, in my, in my little house in Hollywood and Camp Down. I'm at the top end of a loyalist estate. It's June, so they've got all the loyalist flags up and the orange order and all that. But there's an invisible social border at the bottom of our road. It, it, it can be simply put down there. Listen to them. Down there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a world I don't know down there. Uh, there are, I mean, the, people spray drug dealers out in people's houses, you know, at the bottom end of Abbey Ring. All the signs down there are, for the EU referendum, they're all leave ones. This end, they're all remain ones. So even though we're a small geographical area, all connected back up the streets, there's a clear social boundary. Stuff I don't know about what's going on, you know, 200 yards down the road. So in a sense, how can anyone be totally part of or understand the culture? Our knowledge is always partial. Well, I suppose in your work, you're reflecting the fact that culture is a thing of many, many parts. Yes. Anyway, yeah. it has, and it is, and, and your and your work deli- almost deliberately seems to reflect that. Yeah. Lots of different parts, lots of different things going on, different different beliefs, different styles, different tastes. So I guess I guess no one person can capture all of that. Yeah. I mean, growing up in Northern Ireland as officially a Protestant, because everyone has an official religion, whether you darken the church door or not, there are certain assumptions people would make about me and certainly I was exposed to certain cultural artefacts and I looked at them and I thought no, I don't have to accept this and I don't accept this I think it's nonsense, I don't accept any of it, I don't see any value in it in fact I think it's, I think it's been destructive for centuries this, so I rejected it, which is me transforming or transmuting You know what I was expected to have as, as growing up as a young man yes Young male, white, middle class Protestant. I, I took the red pill or was it the blue pill? <laughs> I think it's the red pill. I, I think remember. it's the red pill. I think it is. So I wanted to just move on to tone of voice. Last year I interviewed a guy who was a senior editor at Tor. Mm. Um, and I asked him, um, what's the one thing that you look for in new work when it crosses your desk? And without hesitation, he said voice. He's, he's fascinated by voice. And it really struck me, again, people who've read 
different you know a number of your parts of your work will know this with luna the tone i think was markedly different well not markedly but the, the voice yeah. and the tone was different in yeah. that it was much leaner it was much harder it was yeah. more driven do you see that i'll be mean to ask you this question do you see that as that's where you've gone for this piece of work or do you see this as part of a kind of general development of of the art that you produce I went there for this piece of work. Interesting you say it's leaner and harder because that is what the moon is like. I, I wanted to write the way that the lunar environment Right, is. yeah. There's also a little, another couple of tricks in there for generations who are born on the moon. They use no animal metaphors. Whereas people from Earth, you know, folk who come from Earth, they've seen animals, they've grown up with animals in a culture, you know, that, that has animals infused all the way through it, as we do. They use them, but kids on the moon, you know, what have got? A few decorative butterflies and the occasional pet ferret. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's interesting you say it, because you've, obviously with that, with that book, you thought about what are the cultural implications yeah. of the environment. Yeah. That, so that, we don't think of, we don't think that air is a commodity to be bought, but air is a commodity or oxygen is a commodity on the, on the moon, for example, is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a sense, actually, oxygen is easy to make, but in a, in a sense, it, it's as plentiful, you know, it's easy to make and as plentiful as water is in Ireland, but we're charged for it because it's the processing and the supplying, you know. In a yes, yeah. It, so it was a deliberate choice that in terms of tone and voice for that yeah, work. It was, it was a yeah. deliberate artistic yeah. choice. What were some of the things you thought about to, to achieve that then? You've, I know you've talked about these a little bit. Were there, there are other things that you thought about? This is how I'm going to get there with that. Yeah, I did think for a while about this. So I'm going to do another another multi-character third-person present tense book for this. And I thought, uh-huh. I think because what present tense does well for me is it gives a real sense of everything's immediate and in your face and the moon is very in your face all the time very close up and claustrophobic so, so even though i'd used it before for various aesthetic reasons actually in the dervish house because i wanted to get a feel of its five days in the life of the city i used it again with a few variations, it, like um, Adriana's, Adriana's biographical chapters were all past tense and first person as well. Yes, because yes. because I wanted I wanted to get into her particular personal voice as the founder of Corvelia. Well, it's interesting what you just said there because just thinking about it, Adriana is is the one with history, isn't she? She, is, she has yes, much yeah. more history and context than the rest of them. Yeah, the rest of them are are trapped in their the moon is it yeah that, that's it they're, yeah they're, yeah they were born there yeah it's the only world they know and i can see certainly why present tense works for luna because it just has that kind of urgent feel to it doesn't it present tense mm, and lots yeah. of energy and lots of immediacy and you're only five minutes away from something happening yeah. some gas <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so something hideous is going to happen in you know somebody's going to yeah. chop one of your toes off or something yep yeah. <laughs> um so d- now, you said that was a deliberate choice, that time. Has yeah. your writing changed over time anyway, just in terms of it's matured or it's, it has, has, has there been that for you? It has over time. I was, I was a lot more flowery when I was younger, but then probably most of us are. <laughs> There's a couple of, some of my old stuff I can't read now, uh, without a wince. But I, I, I still do like, I'm still very fond of King of Morning, Queen of Day, which is an old fantasy novel. Okay. Uh, back in back in nineties, I'm I'm still very fond of that. I'll look through it and go, this isn't bad actually. <laughs> yeah, I've got a bit kind of tighter and meaner. The thing about the moon is picking your metaphors. You know, I've said about the animal metaphors. There's not a lot of things to compare things to. Everything tends to be either human or geological. <laughs> yes, a yes. Lot, a lot and a lot of people. That's it. 
And that's, and that's a challenge is making a fresh and striking metaphor briefly that is consistent with the world. Um, I sweat, I, yeah, I sweat blood over this. Does anyone notice? Do they bother? But I do. <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things where it's like in a great film, I suppose, where people don't consciously notice things. It, it somehow seeps into the subconscious and enriches, enriches the book. I think that, I think that is what's happening with Luna. So, a lot yeah. of people won't notice certain things, but actually this really does feel rich because of stuff that's going on that they, people don't know. They only half notice or whatever. Yeah, the film analogy is very good. I was watching the Danish girl on, on TV right. and, and noticed how it had a very limited colour palette. It was, kind mm. of, it, was, it was goldie buffs and very pale blues. And only as Lily's character evolved did spot colour start to come in. But at the end, you know, when he was undergoing the transition, then he got full colours. Yes. And that's, that's something that cinema can do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's much harder to do in a book. I suppose it, once you've got the basics, then you can move on to that kind of subtlety and try yeah. to, 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 to achieve that, that sort of subtlety. Um, again, thinking about you as a, as a writer, there's a, I've got a question here, which is sort of in two parts. The first of which is, what are the really critical lessons do you think you've learned as a writer in terms of the art of writing? Over the years, what's the sort of two, th- two or three things that are like must learn must stuff? Um, find your own time and work inside it. It took me years to realize that I'm buck useless between about two o'clock and four o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes stretching to one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and I, and I, I, I get nothing good done then. Before then and after that, I'm okay. And the thing is not to, not to push it, not to force, because there's nothing more discouraging than ripping out loads of crap words. You know, you could have done better ones if you just waited. Of ours, and it's about finding your own time and making it sacred and setting it aside. This is my best time. Go and do something else. You know, if you're if you've got a job and a family, it's the most difficult thing is reserving and preserving that time. It took me years to learn that. What um, else? Do a little bit every day. I write maybe a thousand words a day, and every one of them is a diamond because because <laughs> I haven't because I haven't pushed myself to do it. Um, I stopped when I've done my thousand words. Usually it's before bargain hunt. I know it, and that makes nice. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice mindless end point yeah. to the days. Yeah, a, a palate cleanser for the brain. That's what I'm I don't write ahead of myself because there's nothing worse than trying to start the next day when you've written out all your ideas and you've no idea for where you're going to go. So I, so I leave myself. I, it's, it's, it's uh, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nothing like coitus interruptus, but, but, but I, I, I do kind of stop short. <laughs> so like, tomorrow, tomorrow. Save yourself. Yes, yeah, <laughs> boy. <laughs> uh, the other bit of that question is going to be when you're the writer marketing themselves or the writer yeah. thinking about presenting themselves, are there things that you've learned in that arena that you can share with us? Yeah, be good to other writers because you will be in that cohort for the rest of your life. And I kind of realized this a couple of years when I was starting out, you know, because I, I kept seeing there's a group of guys, fewer women, of kind of my cohort who began in the 80s. And we'll be seeing each other for the rest of our <laughs> lives. Well, you'll be sharing yeah. platforms and whatever else, won't you? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's it. Be nice. Be nice on the way up because because you can have 50 years of grudge aimed at you. Be helpful to other writers. Don't necessarily read other people's books. Like, it says, you know, can you read my book? Well, I don't really have the time for it. I know it sounds rude and very, but I've got my own stuff I want to read. I've got my own stuff I want to write. If I'm asked to blurb a book, if I have the time, I'll say yes. But often I say no because I have the time. 
Yeah, and it, it, it's true. I yeah, I don't necessarily have the time to read everybody else's books all because there is no end to them. And it's a huge commitment, actually, isn't it? To, it is. It's, it's, it's a huge commitment. Yeah. yeah. Now this sounds awfully rude. Having said, be nice to people. <laughs> preserve your time because because it's your work. If you're a mechanic and you work today in the garage, somebody wouldn't come around with a car. It's out here. A mechanic fix my car for me. No, no, we don't. It's about preserving your time and protecting your talent. Because all writers have talent. Nobody else will look after it but you. You have to nurture it. You have to feed it. You have to exercise it. You have to take it out for a walk every day and do stuff with it because nobody else will. And anything that drains from that, cut it. Fair enough. And are there any other bits of advice? Just think about the writer's life and writing. Are there any other sort of final bits of advice you'd say? For goodness sake, guys, remember this thing as well. Finish stuff. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, just finish stuff. Now, what are you working on then at the moment? Or what's coming out soon? From you. Yeah, soon. Uh, I'm, I am finishing off Luna 2 Wolf Moon. The Wolf Moon is the moon of, is the moon of December in the, in the Iroquois calendar. It also sounds cool. Uh, and I'm doing a novella kind of, a, I don't, I don't usually do time travel, but it, it's, a, it's kind of a time travel love story with the Second World War in it for tour.com based on the Kate Bush song. Kate Bush song and a Goldfrapp song. Two songs. Interesting. Okay. Any, any anything else? Further away on the horizon. Book three, the the, the Luna TV series was optioned by CBS TV last year. It's moving along as these things. I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I've been I worked in telly, so I I know how long these things can. That happens yes. very quickly, but take <laughs> a very long time. Yeah. Okay. Now, if people are interested in your work, they want to access your work, find out about it, buy stuff, see what you're up to. Yep. Where, where do they go and what do they do? Depends what they, what they like. I have a younger readers, I wouldn't say YA because it's not quite that demographic, uh, slightly younger, I have a younger reader series, which unfortunately didn't get finished. <laughs> finished something, is it? <laughs> uh, Planes Runner Be My Enemy Memphis the Sun, out from Joe Fletcher books. They're a shitload of fun, really fond of them. I'm a bit miffed I never got to finish the series, but they're really good, they're, they're, they're really good, fast, Fun stuff. Uh, they've got uh, airship to travel between parallel, parallel universes, all that stuff. Great stuff. There are the three international, the three kind of what I call New World Order books uh, from back at the, back around the start of the century. Uh, there is River of Gods set in India in 2047. Brazil set in 2032, 2006, and 1732 in Brazil. Uh, Dervish House set in 2027 in, in Istanbul. There's a good story collection of stuff I couldn't use for River of Gods called Cyber Bad Days, or which I'm very fond. There is the first Luna book, which is Good Dirty Fun. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Now, when I said I started with Brazil, you you said the interesting start. Yeah, it's a start, yeah. Um, If if somebody was coming to your work fresh, let's say an an adult person, um, where would you recommend they start with? Brazil, there's a difficult one to write. I found Brazil difficult to write about. Uh, liberal cultures are much more difficult to write about than conservative ones like Turkey. River of Gods is good, but it's big because it has, because it's has it's about India, so it has to be big and it's got like 19 characters. Yes. Um, yeah. Dervish House is more focused. Um, I'm, I'm still very fond of that. Luna is good. Um, yeah. Damn, damn good. Damn good. It's all good. Yes, yeah. it is. 
<laughs> the volume goes to the volume goes to eleven and book two. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't book one, there's in your face. Book two does go. Off. Really? Yeah. Well, book one. Oh, for those who haven't read it yet, book one it, it does kick off. <laughs> like, it, stuff happens. Stuff happens uh, yeah. So I if mentioned. that wasn't if that wasn't up to volume eleven, I I don't know what's going to happen. Oh no! No, it, it trust me. Trust me. <laughs> It goes all the way to eleven. Oh, well, <laughs> no, I I think I read somewhere that's February 2017. That second one is yeah, yeah, is that it's, correct? Because I'm so afraid of it. It's giving me real problems. Just, what? just you get turn it up to eleven, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. It's just yeah, it's just stopping it being action, 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 and and getting, I should say, that the voice right yes. and taking yep. care of that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a precise thing, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to say or comment on before we finish at all? No, I don't think so. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm all out of material, huh? Grand. Okay. Well, Ian, thank you very much for your time. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Well, thanks very much indeed, Grace, Ian. Thank you very much Cheers. indeed. Cheers. Cheers.